Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're continuing in the book of Luke in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, and we have been exploring some Old Testament scriptures that help us better understand what was prophesied in Luke chapter 1 when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was given a vision of the coming Messiah that was soon to be born, because this is we're talking about a time frame that is first century Israel, towards the beginning of that first century, the, um, the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, he um, lived on the earth for 30 years before he ever began his ministry. We're told specifically that he was about 30 years of age. And the reason for the 30 years of age is in the Jewish uh, rabbinical um, culture, a man could not preach the word. He could not be a teacher, could not be what was called a rabbi until they attained the age of 30. So following along with these earthly rules, which God often did and does to show his relationship with man so that we can relate with him, the rules that he set, he follows. So when his son was immaculately conceived through the Holy Spirit and Mary, um, it was 30 years before he started his uh, uh, very short ministry. And we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom here. We're in our teaching series entitled Important Prophecy Terms. We're looking at seven sets of prophecy terms in preparation for our general overview of the prophetic events that are going to take place between now and the end of the Bible, which is eternity. And we're looking at the third set of terms. We're comparing and contrasting the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus preached the first time when he came. And then we're going to compare and contrast that with the gospel of grace, which is the gospel that Jesus changed to during his first coming once Israel turned their backs on the gospel of the kingdom the offer of the kingdom. So he turned around and offered a spiritual kingdom that would become the church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and we are under the gospel of grace until the church is raptured out sometime here in the near future, and then uh, Jesus will turn back to the gospel of the kingdom because he's going to turn back completely focusing on Israel starting with the tribulation period and going forward. So before the church, the focus was Israel. Once the church is raptured out, the focus is back to Israel. So that's why approximately four-fifths of your Bible, as you look at it, Genesis to Revelation, four-fifths of that Bible is about Israel. The other fifth is about the church. So we, if we understand that, the Bible just comes alive and the Bible flows all the way through if you have that as a general umbrella overview, if you will. So looking at the gospel of the kingdom, we had established in our prior programs the prophetic 
promises, the prophecies about Jesus coming as the prophet, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the conqueror of the enemies of Israel. He came prepared to do all of that, but Israel turned their backs on him. So we need to understand what was this kingdom that Jesus came to offer, this kingdom offer that the Israelites refused. And it wasn't so much a refusal of the kingdom. They liked the idea of the kingdom, I would imagine. Again, that's my speculation. It's kind of hard when you see the description because they had been studying that uh, through the Old Testament studies. The problem that the leadership had was they didn't want a king. They liked being in charge. They liked having their own authority and people looking up and respecting them and being in awe of them. And this idea of a person coming and saying, I am the king and I'm going to take over everything, particularly the way Jesus came. He did not come as a you know, hulking titan that's going to come in like some kind of supernatural king and he's going to wipe away all the Romans right away and whatnot. In other words, somebody who would invoke fear into the lives of the Israelites. He didn't come that way. His whole point was, the reason he didn't, was he wanted this to be a faith decision, not a, uh, a physical, uh, fearful type uh, decision driven by fear, but one that they would make based on faith. So we need to understand that they rejected him as the king, but what was this kingdom? That's what we've been trying to establish here through our scriptures over the last um, several programs here is looking at what made up this kingdom that he offered the Israelites because they refused it. It didn't go away. That whole offer has just been put on hold and it will still come when Jesus comes back the second time. So please keep that in mind. This is not something that we're studying just for an historical academic overview. What we're studying here is part and parcel going to come about in a yet future date when Jesus comes to set up his millennial kingdom when he comes the second time. So we're in Luke chapter 2. We had gone through this passage in Luke because this is uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, giving us a, a prophetic um, announcement here about what Jesus would do for the nation of Israel, the, the, the promised Messiah king that they had been looking for. And then we went specifically into verses 72 and 73, and we were digging in to understand, you know, these verses in here about mercy to our fathers and remembering his holy covenant, looking at verse um, 72. These weren't just in there um, as cheap talk, if you will. This is God, through the Holy Spirit, giving uh, Zacharias these words to write that are captured by the, the writer Luke here for us to understand, and we're trying to understand that. So in verse 72, in our last program, it said, to show mercy toward our fathers. And you'll recall we went to Micah, one of the minor prophets that uh, wrote about 700 years before Christ. We went to Micah chapter 7, verse 20, and it specifically talked about Judah. So it was talking about the 12 tribes, which has to be a yet future prophecy because Judah has not been together as 12 tribes for almost uh, 3,000 years. They uh, were divided northern kingdom and southern kingdom right after Solomon died in around 930 B.C. 
So now we're talking about a yet future. So it's talking about bringing the truth to Jacob, paraphrasing in Micah. And then it talks about Abraham as the father and about the the promises that were made to Abraham. So the point is, these are important. And God is saying through a 7th century B.C. prophet that this will definitely come to pass. It'll be yet future. And in this case, it's been, like I said, it's been 2,700 years since Micah said that. But I believe that that's going to be fulfilled in the near future because we're coming to the point in time in God's prophetic calendar where the tribulation and the second coming of the millennial kingdom uh, need to be established. And, of course, I'm excited because I know the rapture of the church happens before any of that does. So that'll be the next event we're looking forward to. So we've gone to Micah to establish the mercy towards our Father. Then we were in Genesis 15 in our last program where God has made what is called here in verse uh, 72 of Luke 1, remembering his holy covenant. What was that holy covenant? So if you would, let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, first book in the Bible. And this is where the the first covenant with Abram is uh, in, uh, initiated. And then, of course, we're going to uh, quickly thereafter get into Genesis 17 to, to build on that, get some more scriptural foundation of this. This is a key, key covenant um, called the Abrahamic covenant. We talked last time about how important and how very serious to God covenants are. And listen, if it's serious to God, then it should be very serious to us because we're on the other side of that covenant that God is making these promises to. Well, this particular one called the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, this is a very special one-sided covenant. God is making this covenant with Abraham, and Abraham is actually asleep. In fact, if we go back up to verse 12, we didn't do this last time, but let's go ahead and get some context for this very special covenant that is very important to the nation of Israel. In Genesis 15, verse 12, it says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and upon and behold, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. So he's asleep. Verse 13, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So stepping out of the scripture right here with a little context in verse 13, God is prophesying to Abram, the father of the Israelites, that they, the Israelites as a nation would be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Well, you know the 400 years is the time they were enslaved in Egypt. The Egyptian uh, 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 captivity that they went into. And remember, God is telling Abraham this almost 200 years, between 100 and 200 years before it ever happened, that they would go into this um, captivity And then verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. In other words, I'm going to judge Egypt for what they do to you. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. So he's prophesying the end of the captivity, which would be around 400, roughly 1450 B.C. They went in around 
18, almost 1900 B.C., came out in 1450 B.C. And when they came out of Egypt, as you recall from one of your um, great Bible stories, you probably learned when you were a child that when the Israelites came out of Egypt after those ten plagues, the Egyptians were so anxious to get them, quote-unquote, out of town that they gave them their possessions. So Israel came out with great wealth. God is prophesying this well in advance, in this case, hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, exactly what would happen in verse 14. Verse 15, but as for you, you, talking to Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, you're going to have an earthly death. You will be buried at a good old age. Verse 16, then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the inequity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it's interesting, he's talking to Abraham, and he's talking about these people going into captivity at a yet future date, and then the fourth generation will come out, and you're thinking, wait a minute, I just read above there, that's 400 years they're going to be in captivity, and he says they're going to come out in the fourth generation? I mean, 400 divided by four is 100 well, interestingly enough, you don't have to do all of that math and you don't have to speculate because the Bible tells you specifically in the book of Chronicles, First Chronicles, it goes through the lineage of Moses. And indeed, Moses was the fourth generation of those who went into captivity just as God prophesied would happen. Moses was the fourth generation. And it says there, that you will come out in the fourth generation. So wonderful, wonderful prophecies. And specifically, if you want to look at it sometime, it's First Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It gives that genealogy from uh, Levi, who went into captivity, went into Egypt, and Moses was the fourth generation that came out in the line of Levi. So uh, Moses, consequently, is in the priestly Levitical um, line, genealogical line. And then we get to verse 17. So that's your background. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And these are representations of God. These are representations of God in this covenant activity here. And this um, oven and flaming torch passed between these two pieces, these two pieces of uh, of, a, of an animal cut in half because there has to be a shedding of blood to make a covenant uh, complete. Verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I will give this land. And from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river of Euphra the river Euphrates. And then he includes the people groups that are in this land that they will ultimately conquer through Joshua. Verse 19, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, uh, the Rephaim, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So these are the people groups that were promised to God that were in this land that they would conquer because it would be given to Israel as part of this godly covenant, if you will. So now let's go um, put some additional background into this covenant and let's just go um, two chapters forward in your book, in your Bible. We want to go to chapter 17 of Genesis. 
So uh, Genesis 17, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, and we want to look at the first eight verses, the first eight verses. And again, this is relating back to what we read in Genesis 15 about this covenant. Verse 1, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you, referring to Abraham, I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of multitudes. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and the kings will come forth from you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So as you read through this, you really don't need much explanation. It's uh, pretty clear just on its face what God is doing here. God is establishing a very clear point that I am your God. I am the creator God. I've made all this. And through this very serious personal covenant between me and you, Abraham, I am giving you and all of your descendants this land. It's, it's, your, it's my land. I'm giving it to you. It's always going to be your land. We'll learn later on that it becomes um, a question of if in terms of faith that when they turn against God, even though it's still their land, God will not allow them to live on it, and he expels them. And he does that several times, as we know from the history of the Jews. But the key thing is, it's always their land. And of course, you hear in the news today that it's not Israel's land, that they are um, usurpers and they don't belong there. Well, it's very clear from Genesis um, 15 and Genesis 17, the land belongs to Israel. And it's Israel's land forever. And when they come back to Jesus in faith, they will live on that land forever in what is called the millennial kingdom. That Abraham is going to be uh, fruitful and multiply and will be the father of many nations. So we see, if you take your hand and go back to Luke chapter 1, that it says in verse 72 that um, he will remember his holy covenant. Well, that's the covenant we've just read about. And we will continue with that because I want to get now into verse 73 
of Luke chapter 1 and talk about Abraham and some specific things about Abraham that it's important we know to have a deeper understanding of what this gospel of the kingdom is. And we'll do that in our next teaching portion. But now we want to go to our Q&A where we are finishing up a um, question that uh, basically stated, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy? And we have shown over the last number of programs that indeed it has everything to do. The fact that Israel is the wife of God has everything to do with these end-time prophecies. Because remember, the first event in end-time prophecy is the rapture of the church. God has turned his attention away from Israel 2,000 years ago because Israel refused the gospel of the kingdom, which we have been studying and exploring scriptures around in our teaching portion over the last number of weeks. Um, He has turned his attention away from Israel because of their defiance, and he has turned his attention to what we call the church today. And the church we learned in Matthew chapter 16 was built on the profession that Peter made there at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked the apostles, who do you say I am? And he professed that Jesus was the son of the living God. And Jesus said to them all there, on that profession, I will build my church. So we're in the church age right now under what's called the gospel of grace. And then once the church is taken out at the rapture, God turns his entire attention back to Israel on the earth. The church is in heaven uh, for the period of the tribulation. Of course, we come back with Jesus at his second coming at the end of the tribulation, and we'll be here with Jesus in our glorified bodies for that entire thousand-year millennial kingdom. But the focus of the Bible primarily is what's going on on the earth. The gospel of the kingdom that was preached to the Jews when Jesus came the first time was the promise of an earthly kingdom. That's what had been promised all through the Old Testament. And then once the church is taken out of the way, God's focus uh, and Jesus' focus and the Holy Spirit's focus, for that matter, the triune Godhead's focus is back on the earth on the Jews with a re-offer of the gospel of the kingdom because the king is coming. Jesus is coming back at his second coming at the end of that seven-year period, and it takes that seven-year period to get Israel driven through circumstances, driven to their knees so that they will look up and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And we we find that... uh, happens gloriously. Unfortunately, it's only going to be a third of those Jews who make it through the tribulation um, to see Jesus come back are going to be judged as righteous, but those Jews will go into the kingdom. And we were spending time in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I just want to go back there very quickly, and then we'll move over to Jeremiah, which is our uh, focus for today's program. But just to finish up in Ezekiel chapter 36 to make the point that when you read these passages, they are just wonderful, wonderful passages about what God has planned for Israel in that millennial kingdom and the fact that he's going to cleanse them from all their sin and they're not going to turn back. They're going to worship God. In fact, in other places in Jeremiah, it tells us, we don't have this in our notes here, but I just it, it comes to my mind that Jeremiah says that they will no longer have to inquire 
with one another about learning about God because it says every man will know God and know everything about him that God wants them to know because they will worship God fully and completely and freely um, to the very man, to every man during that millennial kingdom. So it's going to be a glorious time for Israel, and that's the point I want to make. And one of the reasons, frankly, that I spend the time talking about it in such detail here and with such uh, fervor and emphasis is because you don't hear that today. There is a major movement underway and has been going on for some extended period of time to basically downplay Israel and any reference to Israel's future. That there are there are people, including theologians, that want to say no. Every time you read Israel in here, it should say church. That Israel crucified my Messiah 2,000 years ago, therefore I do not believe, and this is man talking, I do not believe that Israel is worthy of receiving any of those promises. In fact, I believe that God has taken all of those promises from Israel and has give them, given them to the church. It's, recall, it's called replacement theology, and it's a terrible, terrible doctrine because the Bible does not make that reference at all. You have to come into the Bible with a preconceived idea of what the Bible is saying. And, for instance, taking Ezekiel 36 and saying, that has to be the church, that can't be Israel, because Israel is not deserving of that kind of treatment from Father God because they killed the Messiah. Well, uh, if you've been with us in our programs for the last uh, few, uh, two or three programs, we've been talking in the teaching portion about the Abrahamic covenants, the covenant God made with Israel, the promises that they were his people, that he would bless them forever. In fact, we're going to get into that in Jeremiah in just a moment, and that the land is theirs forever. They can live on it as long as they are faithful to God. If they're unfaithful, he kicks them off the land. And he's done that a few times, hasn't he? As a matter of fact, even today, the majority of the Israelites are not in Israel because they're still in the dispersion from 70 A.D. So the point is, it is about Israel. And if we understand that and we just allow the Scriptures to speak, it becomes very, very clear. So... That's why we've been spending that time in Ezekiel 36, and I want us to go back to the left in our Bible, to the book the book just before Ezekiel, and that's Jeremiah, or actually it's two books because Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, a short book in between, but nevertheless, we want to go to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we will um, spend some time in this in our next uh, Q&A portion to finish up, but I wanted to let us know where this wonderful passage is in Jeremiah 31, because Jeremiah 31, we're not going to go all the way up to to verse 31, because this is the Old Testament revealing, the Old Testament revealing of the details of the new covenant, the new covenant that God is making or will make with Israel at the end of the tribulation when he brings them back together again. As a matter of fact, just very quickly, Look at verse 31. It's not in our uh, notes, uh, talking notes here, but just look at it for context. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
And that tells you right there that this hasn't happened yet. This is yet future because it's bringing all 12 tribes back together again. So I want to spend some time here to finish up because this is a glorious pronouncement of God's eternal, eternal love for Israel. Eternal love for Israel. And we'll get into that in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Our special offer this month is Consider the Ant, Volume 1, The Basics. Consider the Ant is a biblically-based look at emergency preparedness. You'll be taken through the steps necessary to prepare yourself for the unexpected. This special DVD can be yours for only $20. To get your copy of Volume 1, The Basics from Consider the Ant, simply call us at 878-6279. That's 423-878-6279. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.